This is the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. Each month, we explore love and sex by asking a single question. To find the answers, we speak with experts and listeners like you. This episode contains explicit material. Please proceed with caution. I'm Noah Michelson. And I'm Karina Kolodny. This week's question is, how can unleashing the power of the clitoris revolutionize our lives? You don't know my name, do you? <laughs> yes, I do. What is it? it? It rhymes with a female body part. What is it? Mova? Today we're talking about the clit, and I think a lot of people might be surprised that I'm so excited to talk about it, because no one ever does talk about it. I can think back to the one time I can think of popular culture where I actually heard a clit reference, and it was on Seinfeld, and Jerry's dating this woman, and he forgets her name, and she tells him, jokingly, that it uh, rhymes with a part of the female anatomy, and he can't, for the life of him, figure out what it is. He even says things like mulva, you know, and totally ridiculous. And at the end of the episode, he screams out the window, Dolores! <laughs> and I always think it's so funny because obviously he's talking about clitoris, but he doesn't even say, it's not even said in the episode ever. It's kind of like a specter haunting the episode. And that's how I feel like the clit is in, in culture in general. It's, we know it's there sort of, but no one ever talks about it. As I'm sure some of our listeners know, the clitoris is the only organ in the male or female body that exists exclusively for pleasure. So when you're saying like, it is this huge thing, it's underlying everything, but nobody's talking about it. No one's actually calling it out by name and, and, and really giving it the credence that it's due. But we're going to change that right now. Right now, single-handedly. Because, well, actually, multi, multi-handedly. Lots of hands here. Lots of hands. All and hands lots of, on deck for the clit. Lots of clits, because we found some people who actually sort of made it part of their mission to get people talking about the clit and, and why it's so wondrous and why we should all be talking about it. Let's uh, kick off the weekend right with a conversation about something I was surprised to learn was only discovered in 1998, the clitoris. Artist Sophia Wallace has taken it upon herself to educate the masses about the female genitalia. In her campaign, Clitoracy 101, she combines street art and even a clit rodeo that involves an interactive installment consisting of a giant golden clitoris. So like you just heard, Sophia Wallace is this fantastic conceptual artist who's been working on this clitoracy campaign, which merges art and education. It's all about bringing the clitoris into popular culture. And she's done a ton of fantastic works. But one of my personal favorites is called The Hundred Laws of Clitoracy, where, as you can guess, she lays out and wrote a hundred different laws. All of them were fascinating, but one of them really struck me. And I read it and it reads, you don't know what you don't know about the clitoris. And I remember reading it and feeling kind of affronted, like, how do you know I don't know what I don't know? What, you know, what 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 are you even talking about? And then really engaging in her work and doing my own research and realizing, oh my God, I'm a sex educator. I have a clitoris. I'm one of the people that should know everything about the clitoris, but I didn't even know what I didn't know about the clitoris. There was so much I didn't know. And if that's true for me, it has to be true for other people too. I myself found out 
very recently that it was only in 1998 that the anatomy of the uh, clitoris was proven once and for all as being this organ that is like akin to like an iceberg and is mostly internal. Um, it was discovered by an Australian urologist, Helen O'Connell, and she was wondering, you know, we're doing all of these um, surgeries on the female body. We take all these precautions to protect um, the, the, the male prostate, male pleasure. There's even... Um, instruments that attach to the nerves to try to protect and make sure that if the surgeon even comes close to damaging the nerves in the penis that like they they pull back i mean that's a, that's an utmost concern of any surgery done on the male genital system and she said how do we know we're not damaging the clitoris all the time and so she did the first ever anatomical dissections of the clitoris with almost no funding and no support and found out lo and behold Yes, it is this internal organ. They're cutting into it all the time with routine surgeries like hysterectomy. So yes, so 30 years um, after we walked on the moon, the clitoris was actually discovered in its true anatomy. And to this day, it has barely made the news. Okay, so like it was published in a major scientific journal. BBC did an article about it, and then it's kind of disappeared. And you can go to any... um, doctor's office and see these drawings and see these like anatomies, the clit is definitely not there. We've covered why the clit needs to be part of the conversation, but we should also ask why isn't it already part of the conversation? According to Sophia, discovering and then relatively ignoring the clit is a historical reality. The clit has been sort of found and lost over time. Um, and maybe not in its whole anatomy, but there have been anatomists, German anatomists, um, Italian anatomists, who claim to have discovered it um, in its full anatomy, but then it was sort of repressed, and basically because the female body um, has only been studied by Western medicine in terms of reproduction, it has not been treated as being important. And you know, some say, well, Freud really kind of put the nail in the coffin when he said, you know, that... Um, there was the mature orgasm and the immature orgasm. So the clitoral-based orgasm was an immature orgasm and pathological, um, whereas a real woman, a mature woman, a natural woman orgasmed exclusively from penetration in her vagina with a penis. And Western medicine said yes, of course. Um, and so the clitoris again disappeared from like Gray's anatomy, for example. So just to give a little more context, Freud had this theory of the immature versus the mature orgasm. And in his mind, the immature orgasm was the clitoral orgasm. It was the orgasm that women had pre-puberty when toddlers, little girls are, are running around and they, they touch themselves. The area that they're sensitive, the area that they touch is their clitoris. But Freud theorized that once women hit puberty, that transferred, that sensitivity, those nerve endings transferred to the vagina. And the vagina was the mature adult place to orgasm. And that if women couldn't orgasm through vaginal penetration alone, he said that they were frigid. And frigid is an incredibly packed word because... It literally means inability to orgasm through your vagina. And if you can't do that, you are less of a woman. You are infantile. You have a actual disease is how he classified it. And that went hand in hand with all of his theorizing around hysteria, which he believed happened in the uterus and was a cause for women going crazy, women having different issues and and led to women getting lobotomies, led to all sorts of terrible things and led to women feeling everywhere. If they couldn't orgasm with their vagina, something was wrong with them. And if you think about the larger implications of that, what we're really saying then is that the only kind of sex that's legitimate sex for 
not just for men and women, for anyone, is sex that's happening with a penis and a vagina. And when you think about it, that's not the kind of sex that most people are having, at least, uh, you know, night to night, or even the kind of sex that gives people the most pleasure often. So what's really kind of mind-blowing about that is that recently there have been a number of studies about the number of women who can orgasm through vaginal penetration alone. A sex therapist named Al Cooper did a study and found that 50 to 75 percent of women cannot orgasm from exclusively vaginal penetration. And if that number sounds high, it might be even more surprising to find that other studies that tried to replicate that found that the number was even higher. Ian Kerner, who is also a sex therapist, did his own research and he determined that 80% of women couldn't orgasm from vaginal penetration alone. He's actually going to join us a little bit later in the program to talk about that and give some insight. When Cleus Press came to me to ask me about writing a book about orgasm, the original premise was, she said, have you heard that there are 15 different orgasms that women can have? And of course, my being the sort of like liar that I am was like, oh, yes, of course, I'd be delighted to write about all 15. And then I started doing research and there, there aren't. There's, there's one. I mean, it all, all comes from the same place. It can all sort of come from different inspirational places on the body. But ultimately, if the clit ain't involved, ain't nobody having a good time. That's Jenny Block, a sex expert who is currently writing a book called Oh Wow, Discovering Your Ultimate Orgasm. As you heard, she was really just focused on the female orgasm. But in researching it, she realized it all kept coming back to the clit. The vagina is not the party place that people make it out to be. It's, you know, it's a vaginal canal. It's the way for, you know, sperm, if you want to get pregnant, to get in. It's a way for baby to come out, menstrual fluid. It's none of the fun stuff. I'm always super pumped whenever women talk about their bodies and sex and pleasure and clits because we don't get enough of that. But we should also probably have someone who's interacting with women and has the male perspective talking about clits, too. Definitely. And we found the perfect person in Ian Kerner. Ian did one of those studies we mentioned earlier that said 80% of women can't orgasm through vaginal penetration alone. He's also an author and wrote the book She Comes First, The Thinking Man's Guide to Pleasuring a Woman. And in addition to all that, he's a sex therapist. So he works a lot with women who have clits and the men who are trying to do good things with them. I was kind of surprised once I started practicing that, um, you know, so many uh, women um, were um, uh, approaching me uh, basically with the issue of, you know, how do I have an orgasm during sex and what's wrong with me? And, you know, those two questions sort of, you know, um, you know, tell you the whole problem that, you know, we sort of live in a world where uh, the predominant paradigm is what I call the intercourse discourse, you know, where we believe that, you know, there's one way to have sex. And uh, if you don't have an orgasm that way, you internalize the feeling of something being wrong with you. And so I really wrote She Comes First to, um, you know, uh, debunk the intercourse discourse. I find it totally heartbreaking that so many women are asking how to come. Because as a gay guy or just a guy in general, if I see Daniel Craig on a TV screen, like my pants are wet immediately, you know? <laughs> so the fact that, that that's not something that everyone can access, that's awful. Well, and I think the bottom line is, you know, we talked about Freud, we talked about some of these historical things at play, but like, this is today. He's a sex therapist today, and women are asking him over and over, how do I come? And that sort of says there's something wrong with culture at large. There's a bigger problem. So I'm curious about what it is today that's holding us back. 
the universe is so hypersexualized, sex, 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 and it's selling things and people are naked everywhere, but it's all pretend sex. It's all like um, the little surface layer of sex. It's never the real stuff. If you actually sit down and have a conversation with someone about it, they, they don't want to talk about like how they actually do it or what it's really like or how long, you know, how long do you really need to go down on a woman to make her come? Nobody wants to have those conversations. That's like, that's like that nitty gritty sort of, I always think of it as the Camille Paglia part of feminism. Like, you know, she always says birth should be bloody and disgusting and noisy and, and so should sex. I mean, sex should sort of, it should basically end with two people coming and laughing hysterically because it's ridiculous. I mean, you do any kind of crazy thing with any body part that everyone's willing to have participate in order to get off. Like, what a crazy thing. But... To my mind, it's really the only thing we have, right? We have to get up and go to work and take care of our kids and pay our mortgage and it just keeps getting either colder or hotter depending on where you live. And the one thing you have at the end of any day, despite it all, despite the budget, despite the weather, despite your boss, is orgasm. That, that really belongs to us. And whether, whether I'm a woman responsible for my own orgasm, which I believe I am, or a partner of a woman that I want to f- help facilitate that orgasm, I want to be as informed as possible. I want to talk to her. I want to read as much as I can. I want to say, you know, am I in the right spot? And I just think... We were a very pretend open society. We are the most closed society sexually that I can imagine. And it's compounded by the fact that we act like we're open. The idea of a pretend open society is terrifying enough, but when you think about the consequences, it's even worse. Sophia outlined some of them for us. So think about like what this does to you psychologically. Like you're a little kid, you're like in this body, like you know what feels good in your body, you know um, where you're sensitive. And then the entire society very quickly starts like focusing on your vagina and like policing it and telling you, don't let someone touch you down there. Don't put anything in there. And you don't have any use for it when you're like six, nine, 11. Like that's not where you feel sensitive. Then you go to sex education and they tell you, you have vagina, you have fallopian tubes, you have a uterus, you're going to bleed. That's painful. That's one of the many things you get to look forward to as a woman. And like, we don't feel bad about that. Save it and trade it for a big enough diamond. No one ever says the word clitoris. No one ever says um, female desire, female pleasure, female fantasy, female sexual dreams. You know, we talk about... um, the male body as both sexual and reproductive. Boys have wet dreams, boys have erections, um, boys ejaculate, um, and there's semen. With girls, it's only about reproduction, and it's only about avoiding unwanted reproduction and unwanted touching. And so very quickly, we teach girls that like what they feel in their own body is wrong, and we don't want to talk about it. We don't have a name for what they have, um, but they need to think of their body solely in terms of this vagina and reproduction and and so I'm not surprised that I've encountered so many young women personally and like in correspondence to me saying like thank you for telling me that I wasn't crazy so Sophia's talking about culture in general but one of the big things she touched on is sexual education which as a lot of us know is far from great in this country yeah if you get any of it at all actually right and if you do 
they're definitely not teaching you about pleasure. No. I mean, even in some of the most progressive curriculums on sex education, we're not teaching about female pleasure. And I don't think there's a single state that mandates that you have to teach about the clitoris, let alone that the clitoris is the female sex pleasure organ, that it has 8,000 nerve endings, that it's analogous to the penis in terms of size and having erectile tissue. All of these very basic things, which are anatomical, but because of doctrine, because of culture, because of what have you, it has been effectively erased. Yeah, that's not important. What's important is how does a man put his penis inside of a vagina? Right, which is actually a lot what Jenny talked about. You know, it's fascinating because I think when we first learn about sex, we learn about the penis and the vagina. Those are the body parts. And the penis goes in the vagina and then everybody's happy. And that is where the confusion begins. Because I don't know that anyone is ever mentioning anything else other than that. And it seems to me that most people, even some women, you know, in general, the clit is about two inches from wherever the hell you think it is. Um, So... I I think the first thing that was just shocking to me was that no matter how I was having an orgasm, it always seemed like there was one little part of me that had to be involved. Otherwise, nothing was really going on. It wasn't that things didn't feel good, but it wasn't, you know, there was never any big bang. And so even just in my own sort of unscientific brain, I started thinking, why would it be? So then I started doing, you know, just a little bit of nosing around. And the first thing that shocked me is that when we do talk about the clit at all, we talk about this little tiny nub outside of the body, which, you know, is certainly the visible part, but that's the very tip. I hate to say tip of the iceberg because I don't really want to compare it to ice, but it is like, it's the tip. The rest, if you stretched out the clit, it's the length of an average penis and it looks a lot more like a wishbone. So I think a lot of people who are listening might be thinking, okay, there are other ways to learn about your body and about sex and sexuality than what you're taught in school. And while that's definitely true, I think one of the most interesting findings from Sophia is that it's not just kids in high school or kids in sex ed that aren't learning these things. From wherever else people are getting information, by the time they get to college, they still don't know about the clit. It's shocking to go around and do a lot of lectures at colleges and universities and having um, young women tell me like, yeah, well, you know, like women don't really have orgasms very often. So like, of course. And and telling them like, no, actually, you know, women have very predictable orgasms when their actual anatomy is addressed. And like women actually can have orgasm after orgasm after orgasm. Like if you if you not that it has to be a competition, but like if you want to put like the clit against the penis, like in terms of stamina, endurance, um, ability to come and come and come, women will win. The clit will win every time. Um, and it's certainly not a competition, but it has direct blood supply in the way that the penis doesn't. And uh, they look at me with complete shock. Like I just told them that like, you know, like the earth is like in a galaxy or something like they never had any idea about this. Um, and so I think it's just the level of like the, how low the bar is and to tell someone like, you know, you're living in this fishbowl, but like, please go explore the ocean and you go wherever you want to go. That's completely up to you. But what I'm telling you is that like you have access to this whole ocean. So as terrifying as it is to take a deep dive into the ocean after spending your life in a fishbowl, I think we also have to think about the consequences that we've already seen from living in that fishbowl, from having this 
very limited perception of, of women and sexuality and the consequences and the effects on culture have been damaging and far reaching. When, when women are not sexually satisfied, when they are not having orgasms, um, their interest in sex uh, becomes less, so they become less sexually motivated. They're less likely to experience sexual desire. They're more likely to potentially have affairs. They're more likely to get in sex ruts. They are more likely uh, to become angry at their partners. They're more likely uh, to become sex negative uh, around partnered sex, around their own orgasms. They're, in some cases, less likely to masturbate. So, I mean, I think as soon as you start asking, uh, as soon as you start saying, hey, orgasms matter more to men uh, than they do to women, or orgasms don't matter as much to women, um, I think you start to uh, get into these inequities. And it's not just men that are saying that other men want to be clitorate. Sophia agrees. People don't get tired of having amazing sex. People get tired of having really incompetent, boring, underwhelming, forgettable sex. But if you're an amazing lover, you know, your partner's not gonna be able to keep their hands off of you. And they're, you know, and also like this whole thing of like, I fuck this person, I fuck that person. It's just like, if you're good in bed, like you don't have to brag. Your lovers will not be able to keep their mouths shut. So it's really in anyone who sleeps with women's best interest to like become clitorate because it's, if they enjoy sex themselves, they are gonna get, um, they're gonna be having such a better time. I think we live in a culture where uh, most men know more about what's under the hood of a car than under the hood of a clitoris. And, uh, you know, and uh, um, we also live in a society where I think um, a lot of women are either um, have also bought into the intercourse discourse and believe that they should be having uh, orgasms via intercourse. Uh, we also live in a culture where uh, women are, are faking it. Uh, you would think that those statistics would go down, the prevalence of women faking it, but it's actually, um, you know, going up. I think the idea of someone faking an orgasm is so wild to me because when you are a queer man and you're having sex, you usually have some kind of evidence of an orgasm. Like things get sticky and you know that people have come. Right. You can't fake it because there's evidence. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because I definitely think a lot of women fake orgasms, even women that are generally in happy relationships. I mean, the amount of friends and people who talk openly about faking orgasms continuously blows my mind. But simultaneously, they're not just faking it for no reason at all. I, I think we have to think about why they're faking an orgasm. Like, why would a woman fake an orgasm? And then in a broader picture, what does that say about how women are taught about pleasure and, and their sexuality? Uh, so, yeah. So why are we in a culture where uh, women are still uh, uh, faking orgasms? Um, you know, it's interesting just to, to bring that question around to clitoracy for a second and specifically around to oral sex, which is really, in my mind, the best way a man can stimulate a woman's you know, clitoris. Um, um, I meet so many couples in which men are very eager um, to sort of change the sex script, to get out of the intercourse 
discourse um, to start including more oral sex. Uh, and it's often women who are extremely reluctant uh, to do that. And I think that uh, you know, genital self-esteem for women is a big issue. Uh, many women uh, consider oral sex um, to be a much more vulnerable uh, act than than intercourse. And a lot of women worry about you know how they're going to uh, taste, look, or smell. Um, and uh, so that will lead a woman often to avoid oral sex um, in terms of uh, in terms of faking. I think uh, you know the the vast majority of women I talk to who fake it um, do so because uh, they don't want to hurt their partner's feelings. They're afraid that their partners will be defensive and be angry. Uh, they're already less interested in sex than they perhaps should be, so they don't necessarily want to change the way uh, things are. Um, I also meet a lot of men who fake it, too, for a number of reasons, and I think the reasons are, are really very similar. So I definitely think there's validity to a lot of the points that Ian makes, but I also think it goes back further than that. I think this whole notion of Freud and the fact that real women orgasm vaginally or orgasm through being penetrated really still haunts us today to the point where women internalize and feel like if I can't orgasm that way, there's something wrong with me. I don't necessarily know that they're faking it for the men's benefit so much as they just don't realize that there's another option. I think you're absolutely right. But I think the next question we have to ask is, so how do we fix this? We have to tell kids the truth. I mean, you have these little kids with these bodies that are doing all of these things and they don't know what to do with them. And if you are seeking pleasure and you're not told to touch yourself, but you know of this mysterious thing that you've seen on the interwebs, then you're going to seek out to, to imitate that behavior. Why aren't we teaching kids about pornography? Pornography is our top entertainment industry in this country. We need to teach kids that Fox is newsertainment and not news, and pornography is entertainment, not sex. I mean, we just have to tell the truth. That's it. In, in some ways, the root of all these conversations that we're having, unfortunately, has to do with what we're not teaching kids. Parents certainly aren't talking about it, at least not in this way. We're not talking about sex as pleasure. And what we're really teaching in schools is mostly scare tactics and abstinence. But if anything, we're teaching reproductive health, which is fine. That's a perfectly reasonable topic, but you shouldn't call it sex ed. And sex ed becomes this conversation about how not to get HIV or how not to get STIs, which is awesome. I want kids to learn that as well. Um, um, but I, there's nothing about pleasure. There's nothing about masturbation. I think it's one of the biggest conversations that we don't have that could probably, again, that could change the world. Imagine if you taught young women to masturbate. If you taught young men that masturbating was actually something that they should go after as much as they wanted to and not be ashamed of, actually both sexes, that they wouldn't be chasing each other in the same way or for the same things. If, if you're going after sex just to please yourself, that's not a good reason. You know, sex should be about the pleasure of two people. Otherwise, you should masturbate. Let me say that again. If it's not about the other person, then have sex by yourself. I mean, that it's easier it's there there's there's 0% chance of pregnancy or sti when you masturbate 
zero. I don't know of any condom or anything else that can offer you those statistics. So unless you're interested in pleasing another person and connecting with another person and I don't know, whatever else, whatever other things that we get from these other, then stay home for God's sake. So this really turns everything on its head because I feel like so many of the people that are trying to limit what we teach young people in sex education about sex health and about their bodies in general are, are sort of operating from this fear that the more information we give, the more we're going to have uh, unwanted pregnancy, the more kids are going to be having STDs and, and, and running around and having sex or, or participating in sexual activities. And it seems what she's saying is when you actually bring the pleasure element into the conversation, you're empowering people to understand their own bodies, not have this huge sense of confusion where these things they're going through and experiencing aren't even being addressed. And so maybe they will make smarter, healthier choices about their body and, and about what they do. Right. And I think we've been talking about the clit as a very specific part of the anatomy, but I also think it functions as a symbol for a location of pleasure and not just for women or people with, you know, that anatomy, but also for, for queer people or people who are having sex not to procreate and aren't, aren't existing in sort of these, um, discourses of penis in vagina equals baby. And that's, what's really exciting. I think for queer people is that we are more likely obviously, to be having sex just for pleasure because it feels good, because we want to get off. Do you think that the increasing acceptance of the LGBT community is, is going to help open up more of those conversations and some of this dialogue for, for heterosexual people? You know, I want to say yes, but I also think that a lot of the queer community is being shamed about their sexuality and about wanting sex. A lot of people are saying, you know, you're going to ruin it for all of us if, if you make it about sex and, and why don't you behave yourselves and get married and don't flaunt your sex. And so I'm hoping that we can, you know, I think that queer liberation is about sexual liberation and I'm hoping that that's part of it, but I'm not convinced yet you're killing yourself in a different way because you're missing out on the biggest stress reliever, pain reliever, happy, joyous thing that totally belongs to you. So, I mean, first I think you need to look. If you're not ready to look yet, at least you need to touch it or rub it against something to figure out what feels good to you. And then if you're partnered, it, you, you gotta have the talk. And I don't care how many shots you have to have first, but you gotta have the talk. And you will be shocked I would be flabbergasted to hear if there are partners who didn't want to know how to please their partners. And if your partner isn't interested, then get out. Get out. So obviously making people clitorate and bringing the clit into culture in the way that it should be, in the way that it deserves to be, is, is a really complicated thing to do. But at the end of the day, becoming more clitorate, I think it might be as simple as just saying the word. A lot of people I notice when they hear about the project and it's like they'll say the word for like and it's like the first time they've ever said it. You know, it's like they're like clitoris and it's all awkward and shaky. And I'm like, say it. Yeah, it's OK. You know, so Karina, this is the part where we've sort of come back from Mr. Rogers neighborhood and we talk about what we've learned. So what have you learned about the clit? Well, number one, I'm going to have Mr. Rogers talking about clits in my head for a really long time now. So thank you for that. My, my pleasure. I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but <laughs> I'm going with it. Um, you know, I think the funny thing for me with this is ever since I I got to know Sophia and, and learned more about the clitoracy campaign, I've kind of been shouting clit clitoris and clitoracy from the rooftops to the point where, like, if people don't know my name in the Huffington Post newsroom, I'm pretty sure they just recognize me as, like, the clitoris girl. <laughs> but I think in doing this podcast, what's been really interesting for me is seeing 
how excited other people are about it too when they when they learn about it and and when this whole sort of world is opened up to them it's like everyone is ready to take a swim in the ocean i totally agree i told you that i want to get a clit tattoo i think my clit tattoo actually might just say clit thunder (laughs) because i love the idea of just this clit and like thunder and power and like you know everything that comes with that and and it's funny when I was a kid and I heard the word clit I always thought of like a gummy worm (laughs) that was my image of a clit and I had no idea what you know what a clit really was or what it did and even as an adult I think that this has been really an eye-opening experience for me and and more than just learning about the actual body part but also just how powerful it would be if we actually did care about number one women and what they wanted but two just the idea of sex is being about pleasure and how radical that could be yeah, but I think I think the really interesting thing is that you say radical and it definitely is radical, but at the same time, it's just anatomy. You know, mm-hmm. like it's just science. It's just fact. And whenever I talk about this, I feel like people feel like I have this activist agenda and yeah. like we both know me, so like let's be honest, I probably do. <laughs> but like I don't think there there shouldn't be anything revolutionary about saying what is scientific and anatomically correct. And it's kind of scary that we live in a place and in, in a culture at this point where that is like seen as as pushing the limits but we're doing our little part to help change that so hopefully everyone listening is going to start saying clit going to start playing with their clits going to start playing with each other's clits we're starting a clit revolution i hope a clit illusion no that doesn't work no but clit puns are fun yeah yeah And now we've come to the end of this week's episode of the Love and Sex Podcast. Please download, rate, and review our show on iTunes. If we get more gold stars for this episode, HuffPost will give us our very own golden clit for our studio. Thanks to our producer, Caitlin Baguki. Get excited for our next episode because even if you've seen sex and the city, you probably haven't heard about sex in the city quite like this before. I want. I like to think of um, the movie Scream, the movie Monsters Inc. The world would be powered by female orgasm instead of by screams, or I guess it would be by screams, but screams that happen because of female orgasm. Like I, I really think that in a very like, like literally, it would be you know, women would be sort of filled up and empowered. Um.